G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. Today, Tomorrow is Good Friday. It's the day that marks the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Good Friday marks the day the incarnate Son of God died on the cross. On Easter Sunday, we'll celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Today is Thursday and known as Maundy Thursday, a day that we remember the Last Supper and the washing of the disciples' feet. Get ready as we unpack the connections between the big events that help us to understand the meaning of Easter. Well, our special guest today is Dr. Brendan Roach. He's the founder and president of the Bible teaching ministry called ACTS. That's A-X-X. One of his central passions includes a focus on archaeology. He sees his lifelong ministry call to teach the word and train people for ministry. So a conversation today about the Easter evidence shedding light on the crucifixion, the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And uh, Dr. Brendan Roach, a special welcome to 2020. Well, hi, Neil. Thanks a lot for having me with you on this uh, special weekend of Christian ministry that we've got coming up. Wonderful. Brendan, there is a narrative. Uh, Sometimes we'll talk about the story of the cross, and we like to recount that story, or we encourage people to read the gospel accounts, the narrative story of the cross. Then there's the message of the cross, uh, sometimes a theological focus there. But how does archaeology help us to connect all the dots here and have a deeper understanding of uh, issues around the cross and Easter? Well, just to help you help you and your listeners a little bit, I'll just introduce my background in this area. I had the, the privilege of studying archaeology, biblical archaeology at Hebrew University and uh, spending three months studying archaeology in Jerusalem and with some of the greatest biblical archaeologists. So we come across lots of huge amounts of different data, but one of the really interesting discoveries that was made in Jerusalem was a crucifixion nail through the heel bone of a man around the time of Jesus. So this nail was actually through the heel bone. So what biblical archaeology does is it provides evidence of the truth and the historical nature of the Bible. For for, for 100 years or so, people were questioning that the Romans even crucified in this way. And there had been no evidence of people being nailed to crosses. But in Jerusalem, around about the 1960s, a a Jewish man from the first century found seven nailed in a uh, Brendan, just let me cut in for a moment. Uh, you're just cutting, uh, you're breaking up a little bit there. I'm not sure whether it might be you're moving around a little, but uh, just uh, we just uh, we'll carry this through, and uh, hopefully we won't have any upsets with uh, our reception. But if you can just uh, 
uh, hold a little steady there. Uh, just yeah, sorry, continue on. Yeah. So the, the the Romans were, as we know, the Romans were very much a, a group of people who wanted to crucify. But the crucifixion was not a method of just killing someone. A crucifixion was a method of humiliation. It was disgrace. And the most important thing, it was caused, it was created to cause long suffering. Previous methods of crucifixion or impaling killed people very, very quickly. Someone would literally be impaled with a stake from the bottom of their body all the way through to the top. And the body would then be there on the cross or on the impaling as a symbol. But the Romans came up with a way to keep you alive for three to four days suffering on the cross. As an example, if you betray Rome, this is what is going to happen to you. So, Interesting as you describe these things, Brendan, and uh, it almost makes me feel like I should have, I should have had a, uh, just a little uh, warning on before our conversation that when we talk about the Easter narrative uh, and we describe issues around the cross, some people get a little squeamish about some of the detail here. And so uh, a little bit of a warning because uh, really we're talking about an adult story here uh, around the cross. Sometimes we have a very, uh, you know, a, a story Story that's you know suitable for the whole family, but uh, but we're going to talk about some things in this time uh, which uh, sound a little bit uh, you know uh, disturbing. So uh, let's con- let's continue here because the thought of all of this humiliation that was a part of the focus of the cross uh, was about dissuading witnesses uh, from doing the same crimes. Is that one way you'd look at the reason for the humiliation? Yes, yeah, certainly. It, it was a. It was absolutely a humiliation. It was a warning sign to family, to friends, to other Christians, to to criminals, to whoever it might be. It was Rome making a statement. Not only that we're in control, but we are going to humiliate you and make sure that you you suffer the most painful death possible. So yeah. Apologies, and this is this is the brutal reality of the Roman crucifixion. And although also we can go back a step from this in the suffering of Jesus when he was when he was whipped and beaten before he went on the cross. I mean, this was a substantial thing that the Romans did that made it very very clear to everybody. And the positioning of the of the cross. It was in a public location. It was outside the city walls at the main gate as people went in and out of the city. This was not how, how executions are done today with, you know, whether whatever methodology it might be. If we think about the American situation, there might be a lethal injection. It might be no cameras there. It might be, you know, the idea that we can have an execution that's not painful and not humiliating. This was the complete opposite. It was painful. It was humiliating. And even the fact when we look at the crucifixion story that there were family members around, the family members around were taking a great risk of their own life to even be seen there because immediately they're identified as somebody who is a, not a friend of Rome. 
Brendan, interesting when you draw attention to the fact that victims were sometimes left on the cross uh, after dying or in the uh, drawn-out humiliation and the agony of dying for days on end. And it draws us to, of course, uh, Jesus dying on the cross and uh, his the request that came that his body might be taken down because the Sabbath uh, was about to begin. Any thoughts here on how the uh, the narrative that we read in the Bible uh, lines up perfectly with the sorts of things that you're describing here about the humiliation effect? Yeah, and and the, the humiliation of the cross is a theological concept as well that starts to flow into the idea of sin. And Jesus taking sin, our sin upon him, taking that humiliation. So how do we, how can God possibly describe the impact and nature of sin? Well, the impact and nature of sin in a physical, it's, it's a spiritual condition, but how do we relate to that as a, as a physical? Well, we're seeing a man suffer physically the most excruciating death possible. We're seeing a man suffer the humiliation of, of, the, of the public nature and the degradation of his humanity on this. So from an emotional, a spiritual, and a spiritual... Brendan, we're breaking up a little bit there too. So uh, wherever you were just a moment ago... <laughs> Let's hope we can uh, we can just uh, solve this little issue because uh, we do want to hear every word you're you're saying. Okay, is that a bit better now? Uh, yep, yep, that's 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 good. So, uh, yep, let's let's keep going from there. Look, look, let me come to the thought that there might be such brutal humiliation, and this is the way Romans dealt with people who were breaking the law. Uh, in our own society, when we have deterrence, oftentimes we'll have a stiff fine, or there might be jail time. Uh, some places around the world where they have capital punishment, uh, it's even, you know, with an electric chair or uh, it's even, it's a little bit, uh, you know, it's almost humane in the way that we might do a capital punishment. But the Romans, they didn't worry about whether it looked nice. In fact, the whole deterrent effect was in that it did not look nice. Yeah, and the, and the methodology of the Roman crucifixion reflected that. The way that they would nail a person to the cross was in in such a way they got so good at this that they were able to keep people alive. Um, one of the things that we mistakenly think about the technique of nailing someone to a cross is that we see it in many of the old-fashioned statues that someone might be nailed through the hand. And again, this is going to get a little bit gruesome for some people, but if you nail someone through the palm of the hand it's very easy for the nail to strip out. There's actually nothing to hold it there. But if you feel the indentation in your wrist, that's where the nail would go because it would go through the bones and it would secure a person and it would also create a very slow amount of blood loss with a nail in there. So they came up with various different ways to create that pain, that humiliation, And we even have records of people being crucified upside down. We have records of people with, they called it a a seat. And so what would happen is, if we think about the the crucifixion and, and what was occurring, 
you would have so much pain going through your feet that you would try and alleviate the pain by letting the weight come on your hands and your wrists and the pain would be so much in your hands and your wrists that you would then push up and this constant shifting of agonizing non-lethal pain until your lungs filled up with fluid so literally drown in your own fluid over a period of days. It was an incredible... And you can, you can have a look and you can read medical reports that have been written by people about what Jesus would have gone through. And it was incredible. Brendan, when we're looking at the Bible account and recognising this Roman practice, the brutality, the drawn out, uh, uh, just uh, the severity of the pain suffered, uh, is this, do you think, uh, something that leads us to an understanding of a biblical account that leaves no doubt that Jesus actually died because uh, people have come up with all sorts of things uh, even in those early centuries uh, that suggested that maybe Jesus didn't die on the cross at all and so uh, the resurrection is meaningless. Uh, This sort of brutality of the Romans, does this give us confidence that Jesus actually died? Yeah, you've got absolutely. We, We remember, take a step back. It actually, the beating of Jesus started Thursday night when he was imprisoned and he was captured. He, he was beaten by the guards. He was beaten by the soldiers. He had his beard ripped out. He was then taken and he was scourged at the pillar. And because it was a Roman um, scourging, that meant that it, it just kept going. There wasn't a, wasn't a Jewish scourging, which was limited to maybe 39 lashes. They kept going, and that alone, the scourging at the pillar, was enough to kill a person because we're not just talking about leather whips. We're talking about leather whips that had iron and barbs and metal balls attached that would literally be ripping the skin open. And this was originally seen to be enough of the punishment. So then putting Jesus on, onto a cross, further pain, further humiliation, further blood loss, There is absolutely no doubt that Jesus would have died from this. Plus, you've got Roman soldiers there who are at the cross. And these these are guys who are paid to kill people. They know when someone's dead. And if they're not dead, they get to take that person's place on the cross. So there's, there's no doubt of what that Jesus actually physically died. And again, it becomes the more, how can I put it, I call it the more mythical belief of secularism that would actually say that a person could actually survive that. And guess what? Without medical treatment, just because they lay on a cool rock. I don't think any hospital that we go in today says, you know what, you've been in a car accident. What we'll do is we'll put you on a cool rock and leave you there for a couple of days and, and we'll come back when you recover. It, it, it is just an absolute nonsense. Our talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. You might like to join in our conversation. It is a brutal conversation, even, about a very brutal event, the events of Crucifixion Day, Good Friday. So 1-800-316-316 to join us in the conversation. Uh, Brendan Roach is our guest. He's the founder and president of the Bible teaching ministry called Acts, A-X-X. Brendan, why don't we take a call from a listener, caller from Sydney. Hello. Uh, welcome along. Hi, uh, yes. Hello. 
Hi there. I haven't got a name for you. What's your name? Uh, Will. Will. Will, what are your thoughts? I uh, just want to say, uh, talk about, um, the. it says in the Bible about uh, um, th- three days and three nights in the Bible. So how does it add up? Um, um, how, does it, how, how do you guys add that up? Okay, three days and three nights uh, was the uh, the Jonah thing. Uh, on the third day is New Testament. Uh, your thoughts here, Brendan, for our for Will. Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Will. And and once you start to to look and think about it, um, it just doesn't seem to fit correctly, does it? But there is a very simple answer, and that answer is that we're going by the Jewish calendar or the Jewish day and night, not the Western or current day and night. So the, the Jewish day starts at sunset. And so when you go through the idea of it starts at sunset and then sunrise, you actually get three parts of day. So you get the day when Jesus um, was died, the Friday. Then we go into Friday night. So Friday night is day two. And then we go through Friday night, Saturday, and then we come to Sunday morning and we've, we've, we've had the three days. So the way you need to understand it is not three 24-hour periods. It's not three periods of time as per the way we understand it. It's three parts of a day. That being you go into Friday, you go on a Friday night and, you, and the clock starts ticking on the sunset. So that's when the new day starts. So you need to think about them that way. And the Bible doesn't is not trying to give us the idea that Jesus was in the grave for 72 hours. Jesus was in the grave for three days. And, and that's what the message which is trying to be given there. So that's the simple explanation without going through it in about 20 minutes as I would in a class with the board and charts and explaining all the variations. Hope that helps you, Will. Okay, Will, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. Brendan, let's turn our attention and uh, your expertise in archaeology. There's been a little bit of a controversy around the site of the crucifixion. Now, uh, most of us have never been to Israel and we don't have that geography in our minds. Uh, but when we think of the site of the crucifixion, sometimes people say uh, that site must have been at the Holy Sepulchre or others say at the Garden Tomb. How do you, as an archaeologist, uh, give your impression about the actual site of the crucifixion? Well, it. For those who, who haven't been there, and I should have made mention of this, if you go to our Facebook page or the Vision Christian Radio Facebook page at the end of this, I've, I've posted some photos that and some images that will help a little bit, but it's always difficult to describe a, a physical thing when we don't have the images available. But the you've got the two locations. If you've ever been on pilgrimage or if you ever go to Jerusalem, you'll see the two locations. You've got the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which history goes back to the 4th century as the place of the crucifixion. And you've got the, 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 uh, the, what's called the Garden Tomb, which, is, which was discovered about 100, 120 years ago by a British explorer. Now, let me start by saying, when, if you're an evangelical, Pentecostal Christian, you want it to be the Garden Tomb, 
Because when you go to Jerusalem, the garden tomb is a peace, a place of peace and tranquility where you can reflect, and it's great. If you're Catholic and Orthodox, you're probably going to be very comfortable with going into the Holy Sepulchre. I've taken many groups there, and most Pentecostals and Evangelicals feel extremely uncomfortable in the Holy Sepulchre. It's almost a little bit like a football match once you get in there. You've got the icons, you've got the religious paraphernalia, but there is not a lot of level of respect for the potential place of the crucifixion and death and burial of Jesus. So that's what I want to say up front for those people who have who have already been there. Brendan, we... Brendan, I'm led to understand that at the Holy Sepulchre, there's, uh, there are different factional Christian groups who hold their own ground and it's not unusual to even have a violent punch-up uh, that's happening and uh, the the sort of I'm, I'm led to believe that it's it's smelly it's uncomfortable as you say uh, so very difficult to think that this might even be the place uh, but there are factions who hold their ground aren't there uh, within the Christian community and it doesn't look very Christian when you're uh, when you've got people arguing with each other well when you when you go there I, I would it's it's control, and I might be slightly wrong on the on the number here, but there's 17 different let's call them denominations rather than factional groups uh, that are actually represented in the whole. Hang on, Brendan, I'm just losing you, breaking up a little bit here too, so uh, not sure what we can do. Uh, just uh, adjust your phone there again. Yeah. <laughs> I'll move around and see if I can find a, a better place for you. How's that? That's that's good. So, uh, yep, keep your phone still from there, and we'll see what we can do with that. Okay, so the denominational groups, 17 of them, uh, all uh, just uh, trying to hold their own place there. Yeah, and I, and I think if we if we understand the significance and the importance of this, you know, just human nature starts to kick in, and people want to control their little space of the most historical site within Christendom. Uh, but but that's, that's just the way it is. It can be people go there and, and, you, and you're going there and you're wanting to encounter God, you're wanting to encounter these experiences and, and you end up with this chaotic situation where, where, where people are pushing in front of one another, their groups are trying to get through, you've got... Um, tourist guides who are saying the most ridiculous things that you can imagine. Where, where, the, where the rock is for Golgotha inside the Holy Sepulchre, there's a reddish stain on the rock. And I was standing there waiting for our group to come down, and a tourist guide walks past and goes, oh, that's the blood of Jesus there. I mean, the, the nonsense that's spoken in here, it, it, it really is. And that's why I encourage everybody to try and get there but make sure you choose who you go with. You don't want to go with a, a general group or a guide who's just going to tell you whatever, a good story rather than the biblical truth. But let's go back to the, the accuracy in the, and the evidence for these two different places. Um, the Holy Sepulchre dates back to the 4th century BC, and it's, it has been... That, so there was churches... Brendan, we might have to hold a thought on this because we're about to go to news. Uh, Brendan, as we come to this part of our conversation and uh, talking about the garden tomb or the uh, holy sepulchre, 
uh, we were just before the news, we were just getting into some archaeological evidence for that. So I wonder if you've got an impression as to one who has studied this, which one are you saying has your preference as the most likely site uh, for the crucifixion? Well, I'd sort of like to build up the drama a little bit, Neil, to sort <laughs> okay. of, you know. Yep. All right, you, you, but, uh, you build the drama for us then. <laughs> uh, no, honey, joking. I'm just going to take a, a quick segue into, into something, again, that's a little bit interesting, you know, and it does relate to these two places. Now, you've, we all know the, the idea of the rolling stone. The tomb was closed with a rolling stone. Well, 96% of tombs in Israel, sorry, in Jerusalem around this period of time had a square stone so when the when the bible is telling us that it was a rolling stone tomb it's actually making a really clear identification that there's something very special that was going on there's very few tombs and they were they were tombs of extremely wealthy people that would have a rolling stone so again it sort of it just beautifully fits in with the with the biblical account that it was the tomb of a wealthy man so that is a very important feature for when we're talking about the garden tomb now going back the holy sepulcher it has a history dating back to the 4th century of of christians who have come and worshiped there as in an actual physical location. When we actually, if you have a chance and, and you go with a guide who knows what they're talking about in the Holy Sepulchre, you can sort of just go around behind the tomb of Jesus and you can find first century tombs that you can walk into and have a look at. So it's absolutely the location of where there's first century tombs. So that's an important part of the historicity of the Holy Sepulchre. It's also, now let's go back a few hundred years to the Roman occupation. Now, the Romans did want to wipe out all reference to the Jewish tradition. So they turned the Temple Mount into a rubbish dump after destroying the temple, and they plowed the whole city back to its foundations. When they did that, the location of Jesus' tomb, they built a temple on it, to Hadrian in 170 or after 117 AD. And in the ancient world, it was very typical to build temples over someone else's religious site to demonstrate dominance. So there's a lot of long-standing history. There's graffiti that goes back to the second century that's been found at the Holy Sepulchre. So there's a lot of evidence, first century tombs. Okay. What about? Yep. Keep going. I don't want to interrupt. This is wonderful. Yeah. So let's have a look at the the garden tomb. If you've been to Jerusalem on pilgrimage, you've been to the garden tomb, and you know what a wonderful sight it is. So the the, the thing about the garden tomb is we have the skull shaped rock, and so the skull shaped rock is is again linked to the idea of Golgotha and the idea of the skull in a place of execution. Uh, but the so that's definitely one thing in favour of the garden tomb. We have the actual tomb itself. It's also outside the city walls. The Holy Sepulchre was also outside the city walls. But later on, in about 100, 110 AD, they built more walls, and it became a, it then became inside the city because you could not have a place of death 
inside of the city. You could not have a tomb inside of the city. So that also goes and so people sometimes get confused about that. You've got the wall. The wall was built after as Jerusalem was expanding rapidly. But getting back to the garden tomb, the one thing that bottom line that says this is not the location is many archaeologists in the last 20 years have examined the site with, with new techniques and it is actually an Old Testament tomb. So unfortunately, as much as we would love the garden tomb to be the place, and I love the garden tomb. I love going there. I love praying there. I love having communion there. I love reflecting on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection there. But unfortunately, the garden tomb is not the location, in my humble opinion. Okay, and uh, that's important, but it's your educated opinion that we're asking you for today. And so Church of the Holy Sepulchre is more than likely to be the more accurate location. Hey, let's take some calls. Annie is in WA with a call. Hi, Annie. Welcome. Oh, hello. Um, thank you for taking my call. I'm feeling a bit emotional. That's um, right. I I want to thank you because I I was li- listening to um, the radio and oh, just the whole Easter, the religiosity surrounding Easter. It, it's just wearing thin on me, and you. Feeling so emotional. You've made it alive for me. You've made it real. And um, I'm just hanging on every word you're saying. And um, thank you. I just wanted to say thank you. Annie, wonderful to hear that. And uh, if you're feeling that way, no doubt other listeners are too. And a, a quick comment here from Brendan, because when you start to describe the the behind-the-scenes things that you are, what archaeology brings to the table, brings to the narrative, the story of the cross. Uh, These things bring the story alive, don't they? Yeah, and and I I think, you know, around, you know, Easter Thursday, Easter Friday, hopefully you're going to be at a church or do it by yourself where you have communion. And the Bible talks about weep with those who weep. So on, on... we're all about the resurrection, but on, on Good Friday, let's remember the suffering. Let's actually take communion and let's actually weep for what Jesus did for us. Annie, thank you so much for your call. Let's take another call too. Jenny is in Henty in New South Wales. Hi, Jenny. Welcome. Hi, how are you? Good, Jenny. What are your thoughts? Might need to turn your radio down in the background. I've turned that down. Turned it off. Great. Um... I just wanted to ask um, about Joseph of Arimathea, whose um, tomb it actually was. He, he built that, didn't he? Uh, he was, we t- we're told he was a rich man. Um, I've looked up Warren Worsby, and he, he says that he, his theory is that he could see that Jesus wouldn't live very long and that he would need a tomb at some stage. Um, he wasn't actually building the tomb for himself because if he came from Arimathea, he would have a tomb at Arimathea. He wouldn't have a tomb in Jerusalem. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Brendan? Yeah. Um, well, one of the things which he possibly, possibly, but what I'm going to tell you is that Jerusalem was 
is and always will be prime burial real estate for a Jewish person. So we're talking about a Jewish person here. And let's remember what Ezekiel says, the valley of dry bones. And we've got the account of the resurrected people around Jerusalem. So the whole idea of the, the rapture is very much built around the concept that those in Jerusalem are going to be raised up out of their graves. And we only have a very obscure reference to it in the New Testament. But let me tell you, if you, it is the absolute number one prime real estate. It would be like saying to someone, would you like to live in the most wealthiest suburb in your town or would you prefer to live in the slum? That's how radically different it was in the mind of a first century Jewish believer, i.e. someone who believed in God that they wanted to be buried in Jerusalem. And a rich person at that point in time and and later on over the next 50 to 100 years, large estates were built north of the city. So you mightn't be able to be buried where the high priests are buried. Like every family of the high priest is buried in in the valley, um, valley of dry bones. They're all buried there. That's where they want to be buried. They bring the bones back there from another place to be buried there. So let me assure you that there is a 99.9% chance that that man wanted to be buried there. Jenny, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. You might have your own question or a comment, even a critique for our conversation. If something you think doesn't sound quite right, uh, you're welcome to, welcome to give us a call, 1-800-316-316. Let's talk about the burial practices a little more deeply here, Brendan. Uh, the container that the bones or the bodies are put into called an ossuary. These are Mm. sometimes important. You might like to explain for listeners uh, why an ossuary is actually an important part of the Easter story. Well, the ossuary was a very limited practice to Jerusalem from about 150 BC to about 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the city. So there was a heightened sense of ritual purity in Jerusalem at that point in time. That being the idea that you wanted to be as holy in righteous, by righteous I mean in right standing with God, not religious but righteous, in right standing with God. And one of the ways that that would be done was through the burial practices. So you would, the, the, the person would die, as we see with the death of Jesus, They take and it is on a stone bed for that body to be prepared. Now, they didn't have the chance to finish the preparations of the body in the the Easter story for Jesus. So they laid him in the tomb and they were coming back the morning of the resurrection to finish those practices. The body would be laid out on this stone slab for a year. And again, sorry for the brutal nature of this, but the flesh would rot off the bones The bones would then be collected and the bones would be collected into what we we would understand as a small coffin. We call it an ossuary. It's made out of limestone and it's the length of the leg bone, the width of the ribs and the height of all the bones with the skull placed on top of it. So imagine a large briefcase for those who are old enough to remember what briefcases were. So that type of scenario. So it links in 
with the biblical concept of sin is in the flesh. And so the, the, the flesh rots away, the bones that remain are holy, but what we see in the story of Jesus is the flesh doesn't have to rot away because Jesus deals with the sin when he goes into hell, he defeats sin and he's resurrected with a glorified body. So there is no consequence, sorry, the, there is no sin in Jesus' flesh. So again, that's a very important concept that's not well known around the scriptural account. Let's take another call. Teresa is in Petersburg in South Australia. Hi, Teresa. Welcome. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me on. What are your thoughts? Um, just this Easter, I'd like to see people going to church and not wearing that horrible face mask. <laughs> yes, I think, uh, you know, in a lot of places, uh, there's a whole lot more freedom. There are obviously going to be some places around the nation, some states where the face masks are still uh, part of the law or the health orders. But yes, I think you're absolutely right there. Did you have anything else, uh, any question around the conversation today about the crucifixion and the resurrection? Uh, just that we should be telling people about Jesus every day and um, that, you know, a special time, Easter's a special time and um, encourage people to go to church. Wonderful stuff, Teresa. And interestingly, Brendan, when we have conversations about uh, some of the deeper aspects of the story and the message of Easter around this time of year, this is a deepening of our understanding that actually prepares us to be able to share our faith with others. So this is a time to actually uh, look to deepen your faith, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think one of the one of the things is we've we've all been through different forms of, of let's call it suffering in the last two years and um, people have lost family members, people have lost jobs, people have been locked down, people have had huge restrictions put on their life. This is, this is where us as Christians need to embrace the theology of suffering and, and Good Friday is the, is the day to do that, that there is, there, is, there is suffering as part of our life, but there is always a resurrection. There is always a hope of the future, not only in, in the Easter story, but in our own personal story. So I, let me just encourage you. We've all been through huge amounts of suffering of one form or another in the last two years. There is a hope. There is a resurrection. There is a day when we will come through this, and many already have, but for those who haven't and are still going through it, just take this day Easter Sunday and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus but also celebrate your own personal resurrection of your life and your circumstances as we believe in a dark time that we too are going to be resurrected and see a hope in the future. Teresa, thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316. Hey, let's come to the fact that today is Maundy Thursday and a day that we might uh, remember the Last Supper. It's a part of Easter too, and when we're talking about burial practices, is there a link here, Brendan, that we can see as important for thinking about what happened on the Thursday before Good Friday? Yeah, so if we go back, many of us focus on Jesus washing the feet of the disciples as an act of humility and servant leadership, which it absolutely is. But when we link it to the ossuaries, when we think about 
the high level of ritual purity that's going on, it takes on a whole other meaning to this story. So, for example, it was believed if you walked in the dust of another person who was impure, unholy, you would become unholy. So when we think about that story, so that's just the idea of that the, the nature of sin and how invasive it is in our life, right? That just a small speck, Easter Thursday is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Again, the idea, it just takes a tiny little bit of leaven, a tiny little bit of sin to start to permeate our whole body. Jesus comes and he washes the feet of Peter. And Peter says, no, I'm not going to let you do this. But Jesus says to him, I am going to wash your feet. So in the culture of the day, what Jesus is actually saying is, I am going to remove every last little speck of sin that's in your world. And Peter gets it. He understands. He's part of the culture. He gets it. And the moment he gets it, he says, well, not just my feet, but my hands and my heart and my head as well, or my, my hands and my head as well. And, and so he's saying totally, and he goes, if I wash you, you are completely clean. Does that mean we're going to lead a sinless life? No, but we are completely clean and washed clean and pure. And that's what we need to remember from the, from the Easter Thursday story, that what Jesus is about to do for us on the cross doesn't partially remove sin but completely removes every single little speck is completely washed clean in our life. No detail is unimportant when we're talking about the Easter narrative, right from Maundy Thursday uh, through until Resurrection Day. Let's squeeze in one more call. Bev is in Queensland. Hi, Bev. Need to be quick. What are your thoughts? Yes, Neil, I've always wondered about the the shroud was just collapsed, but the face covering was folded separately on its own, and I wondered about that for many years. And just recently someone said that in some, I don't know, some area culture, if you're sitting at a table having a meal you and you want to leave, but you fold your serviette in a, you know, and just leave it there, folded beside your plate, it denotes that you will come back, you will be back. Okay, well this is you've opened up, I'm sure this is a big one we could probably talk about for a long time, Uh, shrouds in the burial practices and of course there was a very controversial and I think uh, it has been uh, uh, dismissed, uh, the Shroud of Turin from uh, some decades back, but uh, your thoughts here for, for Bev, Brendan? Well, I'm not the person who asked on etiquette practices, but <laughs> uh, modern day etiquette. But you know, I, I think you're, you're right. There's there's a lot more that can be said about the, the burial practices. The shroud. I think it's well proven now that the shroud of Turin wasn't the actual shroud. It's a, it's fascinating within itself, uh, very fascinating. But it, unfortunately, it's not. And I think when we look at archaeology, we don't want to make something uh, that isn't. So the shroud isn't, so let's not make it that it is, otherwise we look a little bit foolish. Bev, thank you so much for your call, and time has run out, but what a fascinating conversation this has been, Brendan. Uh, Just to talk about how listeners can connect with you, and I I love to mention, of course, the uh, Acts Bible Teaching Ministry, and when we say Acts, 
It's AXX, the website, AXGlobal, AXX.Global. But you've got ministry training courses. And just to let listeners in on something here, because you have set up your ministry training courses, Brendan, for people who can't, for reasons of geography or cost or discrimination or persecution, they can't normally access opportunities to train for ministry around the world. And so when people are getting involved with ACTS, there's, a, there's I think you had something like a thousand inquiries just last month. Just how significant has things grown for you? Yeah, it, it's just amazing how God's been, been blessing us and increasing the ministry. We knew there was a great need out there, and now people, are, through the grace of God, are starting to find us. And we talk about Africa, but it's in places like Haiti, it's in Asia, it's in Eastern Europe, it's in Russia, it's in amazing different places. But yes, we had 1,085 training requests in French and English for pastors around the world who live in poverty to get free training with ACT. So anybody who uh, purchases a course through our website, you're supporting that. That's our ministry, that's what we're about. But we also have several free courses that anybody can do on our website. So just get in there and click on the free tab and you'll see some, some courses that we can help you with as well, particularly in uh, in your early work with God. That's what we want to focus on there. And there's something a little bit emotionally connected here with the thought that there may be people who are training for ministry in some places around the world where there is severe poverty or persecution, that when you are actually participating in an ACTS course that you're paying for, and I've got to say, uh, from my understanding, low-cost uh, Bible training even when you are paying for a course, but you are, in fact, uh, standing alongside those who are not able to afford, for all of those different reasons, their own specific biblical ministry training. So let me point listeners to AxGlobal, AXX.Global. Take advantage of those free introductory courses, but it might be a way that you want to deepen your own faith and what a decision to make right on Easter. Uh, Dr. Brendan Roach, who is the founder and president of the biblical teaching ministry called AXAXX. Brendan, thanks so much for taking some time to share your thoughts with our listeners today on 2020. Thank you, Neil, and everybody have a blessed Easter and remember the, the significance of these days. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 